0: Welcome to the second episode of Guy Who Reads, a book podcast. My name is Juma Khan and today I'm going to talk about John Green's 2008 novel, Paper Towns. But before we begin, I have to warn you guys that there will be spoilers. So if you don't want this book to be ruined for you, I would suggest you stop listening to this episode right now. John Green, if you don't know who he is, he is the author of books like The Fault in Our Stars, Looking for Alaska. His book The Fault in Our Stars was recently adapted into a Bollywood movie called Dil Bechara starring Sanjana Sanghi and the late Sushant Singh Rajput. The movie, w- the movie is available in Disney Plus owned Hotstar for both subscribers and non-subscribers. If you haven't watched it, please do. It takes this amazing story written by John Green and makes it its own. But John Green is not just an author. He is also a YouTuber. He and his brother Hank have a YouTube channel called Vlogbrothers. I would highly recommend you guys to check it out. They also launched Bitcoin in 2010. Now if you are someone who watches YouTube a lot like me and who follows a ton of content creators, then you know what Bitcoin is. It's the biggest convention with content creators. When John and Hank Green started Bitcoin in 2010, it only had 1,400 attendees. And even then it was sold out. In 2017, Bitcoin has over 30,000 plus viewers. That is simply amazing. And it's amazing that John Green, this author who wrote a New York Times bestseller book, is also the same guy who created the biggest YouTube convention. Paper Towns was John Green's sport novel. It's a coming of age story for young adult. It was born out of a real concept that John Green was introduced to on a road trip when he was junior in college. He and his companion were driving up and down the same highway trying to find a town the map told them existed. When they couldn't find it, they pulled over at a driveway and a woman told them that the town they were looking for only existed on the map. It was a paper town. Now, I never knew anything about paper towns until I saw the adapted movie of this book. Paper towns have a, have different meanings. A pseudo vision is also called a paper town. A pseudo vision is basically a suburban development that was abandoned before its completion. The other meaning of paper town is a fake entry that cartograph- cartographers add in their map as a copyright trap. So if, say, another map maker comes and steals their work, they would be able to add they would also add that fake entry of a town that doesn't exist in real life, so the original mapmaker or cartographer will be able to sue them on the guards of grounds of copyright infringement. It's brilliant. Paper Towns, the novel, is one of the three books by John Green that were adapted into a movie. The movie starred Matt Wolf as Quentin Jacobson and Cara Delevingne as Margot Roth Spiegelman. It also had Justice Smith as Radar. I swear to God, Justice Smith appears in every teenage movie. He must have broken some kind of record. I saw the movie a couple of years ago and I loved it. So going into the book, I was a little scared. There were several instances in my life when I saw a movie first and liked it and then I read the book and hated the movie. I didn't want that to happen to Paper Towns. But now, please, readers of the world, forgive me, but I think I like the movie a little bit better than the book. I did love the reunion scene in the book more than the movie, but overall I would say the movie was a little bit better. And that hardly ever happens, at least for me. I gave this book 3.5 stars. I liked it, but I didn't particularly enjoy most of it. I just wanted it to go fast so I can get to the good parts. I think I would have enjoyed it more if I didn't know the story, so I blame the movie. Now, like I said, Paper Towns is a coming-of-age story, but it's also a story about friendship, adventure, and our different perception of the world. Now, I don't think I can start telling you guys the story without reading the first paragraph. Uh, the book is written from the point of view of Quentin Jacobson, or Q, as he's called by his friends. The way I figured it... Oh, shit, <laughs> i have already messed up. Okay, here's me trying it again. The way I figure it, everyone gets a miracle. Like, I will probably never be struck by lightning or win a Nobel Prize or become the dictator of a small nation in the Pacific Islands or contract terminal ear cancer or spontaneously combust. But if you consider all the unlikely things together, at least one of them will probably happen to each of us. I could have seen it rain frogs. I could have stepped, on, stepped foot on Mars. I could have been eaten by a whale. I could have married the Queen of England or survived months at sea, but my miracle was different. My miracle was this: out of all the houses in all the subdivision in all of Fro- Florida, I ended up living next door to Margot Roth Spiegelman. Margot Roth Spiegelman. Even though it's a book, uh, even though it's a coming-of-age story of Quentin. This book revolves around Margot. In a few minutes you will understand why. So Margot and Q when they were kids moved in next door to each other in a subdivision called Jefferson Park in Orlando, Florida. Q's parents uh, who are both therapists are friends with Margot's parents. So Margot and Q used to play together and bike together when they were kids. Q has this ginormous crush on her. He finds Margot the most fantastically gorgeous creature that God had ever created. If you get triggered by description of a corpse, I would suggest you skip to the next few seconds forward. So one day when they were nine years old, they were biking together in this park and Q has been in this park so many times that he knew immediately that something was wrong. It was Margot who first saw the dead body. A man in a gray suit slumped against the oak tree in the park. There was blood everywhere and a lot of it came from his mouth, which was open in a way that Mouths generally shouldn't be. Both kids could tell that the man was dead. Quentin, who was a cautious little kid, took a step back, and just as he did that, Margot took a step forward. When Q, Q was a cautious little kid, Margot was curious and a fan of mysteries. Margot was inspecting the dead body, and Q was calling her back, telling her that they should go back and tell their parents. Margot finally listened, and they went back. Their parents called 911, and the body was taken. Q wasn't allowed by his parents to watch as they took the body out of the park. They had a chat with him and tell him that is something he shouldn't be concerned about at that age. And Quentin was actually good. He thinks, people I don't know die all the damn time. If I had a nervous breakdown every time something awful happened in the world, I'd be crazier than a shithouse rat. While Q was being unbothered by all of this, Margot was doing her own little investigation about the man. She found out that his name was Robert Joyner, he was a 36-year-old lawyer who shot himself because he was getting a divorce. It's amazing how she found this out. She was 9 years old and did her own little investigation about a man. She discovered that only a few hours ago. It's amazing. That night, as Q was about to go to sleep, Margot appeared at his window. She told him about Robert Joyner and what she found out. Q hears his story and says, Lots of people get divorces and don't kill themselves. To this, Margot says, I know. Maybe I know why. And then she said something that uh, stuck with me. And I can safely say it also stuck with many who read this book. She said, maybe all the strings inside him broke. Strings. Strings is used as a metaphor throughout this book by many characters. But it has different meanings for different characters. With Margot, right now, when she said that, it was a metaphor for mental stability. Cut to nine years later, they are seniors in high school. Q and Margot have drifted apart, but Q is still very much in love with her, but he can only love her from afar because Margot Roth Spiegelman is a popular kid who has a boyfriend. But not just that, she has legends, which the whole school knows about. Over the years, Margot ran away from home a couple of times. She always returned, and whenever she did, She came back with these amazing stories which, when you hear them, you simply can't believe is true. But they are. Like once, Margot joined the circus for three days. And once, she drank coffee backstage with a band member. She got backstage by pretending to be a band member's girlfriend. Margot Roth Spiegelman was simply the queen of her high school. Q, on the other hand, could be considered a nerd. His best friend Ben and Radar are both in band but they are still considered nerds. Ben is a small, olive-skinned kid who hit puberty but never hit it very hard. He calls girls honey bunnies, and he is very confident in his ability to be a great lover, even though he never gets any girls, mainly because of a story that circulated when he was in 10th grade. He was hospitalized because of a kidney infection. Becca Errington, a friend of Margot's, spread the rumor that the reason behind Ben that the reason Ben had blood in his pee was because of chronic masturbation. He was called Bloody Ben by pretty much everyone in the high school. Radar, whose real name is Marcus, is a big-time editor of this online user-created reference source called Omnitionary. Think of it more like Wikipedia. He is very devoted to this site. With being tech-savvy, I also think Radar is the most level-headed kid out of all the three of them. His family has the biggest collection of black Santa merchandise and he is the only one in that household who isn't proud of that. Radar is also the only friend among the three who has a girlfriend. But he doesn't introduce her to his friends mostly because he is ashamed of them. And his friends are okay with it. That day in school, Ben is desperate to land a date for for their senior prom. But no one would go out with him because of the bloody Ben story. He also has a little crush on Lacey Pemberton, who is Margot's other best friend. Q, who hates prom, doesn't much care about Ben and his desperate need to go. It was a very normal day for Q until Margot Roth Spiegelman slid open his bedroom window and snuck inside his room at midnight. She was wearing a black hoodie with black face paint. Now, this is the part where I had to stop for a little bit to contemplate what just happened. She was wearing black face paint. If this was set in 2020, this book would have been very different. She was wearing black face paint to stealthily sneak out of her house. She says to Quentin that she needs his mom's car, and she wants him to be his getaway driver. She has her own car, but running away several times, uh, her parents does not trust her as much. So her car keys is locked inside a safe in her parents' bedroom, and she can't get it out because her dog, Mirna Mountweasel, starts barking whenever she sees Margot. She has 11 things to do, and in at least five of them, she needs a getaway driver. Quentin, who is a very cautious person, questions her if there are felonies involved. She assures him that there is not. He asks her why can't she just ask the help of one of her friends, and she says that they are actually part of the problem. That's where Margot's father spots her and asks her to come inside. She does. However, she returns soon. A few more assurances, and Q agrees to go. Earlier that day in school, Margot found out that her boyfriend, Chase Worthington, has been cheating on her with her best friend, Becca Arrington. So she plans 11 things to do, th- to do that night, and a few, of the, a few of the first involves Becca and Chase. But before, they, before that, they need to buy some stuff. So they go to Publix, which is a supermarket. There, Margot gives him a list of things to buy, and it contains some of the most randomest, weirdest items. Three whole catfish, wrapped separately. Wait, it's for shaving your legs, only you, do, you don't need a razor. It's with all the curly cosmetic stuff. Vaseline, six-pack, Mountain Dew, one dozen tulips, one bottle of bottle of water, tissues, one can of blue spray paint. She uses the bottle of water to wash off the black face pen that she puts on to sneak away from her house without getting caught. Thank God. Then they go to Walmart to buy a thing from the infomercials called the club. The club blocks the steering wheel of a car in place. When they get all, all the stuff they need, they go to Becca Indian's place to complete the first few things on her list of 11. Jesse's car is parked a little out of the way from Becca's house. She goes over, opens his door, apparently the fool never locks his car, and she puts the club over the steering wheel. This was part one. Becca and Jace at the time were having sex in Becca's basement. So Margot told Q to call Mr. Arrington. She gave him the number and Q told him that his daughter was having sex with Jason Worthington in his basement right this minute. Part 2 completed. A few minutes later, Jace came running out of the house. He was naked but for his boxer shorts and he took off running. And that's when Q got up and took a picture of him. The flash surprised both Q and Jace. And he looked at him for a second before he took off running again. Part 3. Done. They saw the picture and it was of a stunned Jace Werdington and his micro penis sticking out. For part 4 and 5, Margot and Q had to sneak inside Becca's basement in case Jace come back for his clothes. Margot wanted to deny him that. For part 5, she wanted to leave one of the catfish for Becca. So they snuck inside the basement while Becca was getting yelled at by her father upstairs she hides the fish at Becca's closet between a folded pair of shorts and leaves a message for her too. Your friendship with Margot, it slips with the fish. Then Margot spray paints an M on the wall. As they make their way outside, Becca's mom sees them and yells for her husband, who a second later gets out of the house with a shotgun. But they manage to get inside the car and drive away. They see an AKJ Sverdenten still running and in that moment, Q takes pity on him and throws him his polo. Which frustrates Marco. She thought maybe he wasn't cheating, and knowing that he had that too with his best friend, it was eating at her. Next, when they went to Karen's house, Karen was the one who told Marco about Becca and Jace, and Marco didn't take the news well. She screamed at Karen, called her names. So she wanted to leave flowers at her doorstep with an apology note. This was part six. For part 7, they were going to leave a fish for Jace Worthington. Margot told Q to keep the car running. The Worthington had a crazy security system and sure enough, as soon as she took one step, the alarm started blaring. She ran and threw the fish through Jace's window and carefully spray-painted an M. She ran back to the car and before she could even close the door, they were out of there. Cop cars roared past them toward Jace's house, but they were saved and part 7 was done. For part 8, they were going to Lacey Pemberton's house. Lacey Pemberton, Margot believed, knew all about Jay's cheating on her with Becca, and she didn't tell Margot. But not just that, Margot says that Lacey has been a terrible friend. She would give these backhanded compliments to Margot and make remarks indicating Margot was fat. So they go over to her car, but it's locked, and Margot very easily picks the lock. Together with Q, she lifts the back seat of her car and slides in the fish and slams the seat on the fish, making the catfish guts explode. She leaves a message for her as well Your friendship with Margot sleeps with the fishes. Margot asks Q to spray paint an M in the roof, and he does. For part 9, they go downtown. They go to this building called Suntress Building. The security guy is a guy named Gus, who is a friend of Margot who allows her to go to the top whenever she wants to. The elevators were down, so they take the stairs to the 25th floor. Oh my God, I would literally die. They go to the conference room, which, according to Margot, hold the, holds the best view in the entire building. They look at their city, their subdivision. Quintin says, it's beautiful. To this, Margot scoffs. Ready? You think so? I think it's better if I read this part. Before I had a chance to say anything, her eyes went back to the view and she started talking. Here's what's not beautiful about it. From here, you can't see the rust or the crack band or whatever, but you can tell what the place really is. You see how fake it all is. It's not even hard enough to be made out of plastic. It's a paper town. I mean, look at it, Q. Look at all those cul-de-sacs, those streets that turn in on themselves. All the houses that were built to fall apart. All those paper people living in their paper houses, burning the future to stay warm. All the paper kids drinking beer and bum bought for them at the paper convenience store. Everyone demented with the mania of owing things. All the things paper thin and paper frail and all the people too. I've lived here for 18 years and I've never once in my life came across anyone who cares about anything that matters. I think this tells you how frustrated she was with the world she was living in. Her priorities weren't the same as everyone else's, so she didn't value theirs very much. Margot reminds me of someone, a guy from America whose story I learned back in 2015. His name was Christopher McCandles, but he later changed it into Alexander Supertramp. Jean Cracker I don't know how to say his last name, Jean Cracker Cracker. anyway. John Krakauer's book, Into the Wild, is about his life. He was this guy who was frustrated with the world he lived in and desired to live a very secluded, very itinerant lifestyle. So he extracted himself from the world he was living in, which is very hard to do, and he set out on this journey to Alaska. In the Alaskan forest, he found this bus called Fairbanks Bus 142, which was actually removed this year because a lot of people were making their way to the bus and... Many died, and several got lost in the way. Anyway, Alexander died in that bus. The cause of death was starvation, and it's sad that it was brought on by poisoning, but it's up to debate. His story is one that stuck with me, and it inspires me. Margot does something similar like Alexander, as you will see when I tell you the rest of the story. But there are also differences. Okay, back to the story now. In that conference room, Margot refers to the strings again. She says, I mean, just so you know, it's not that I am also upset about Jason or Becca or even Lacey, although I actually liked her, but it was the last string. It was a lame string for sure, but it was the one I had left. And every paper girl needs at least one string, right? Now, at first when I read this, I thought she was referring to her mental stability. But later when I finished the book, I think the metaphor for metaphor of strings changed. But I will leave leave it up to you. Uh, I will leave it up for your interpretation. Now, the last time she mentioned strings to Q, they were nine years old. So he doesn't make the connection immediately, but he does later in the car. And he asks her about it, and she assures him that she's not going to kill herself to be found by little kids in Jefferson Park. This makes Q feel a little bit better. For part 10, Margot gave the choice to Q to pick out a target, and they are going to give them a punishment. Now, Q didn't really had anyone in mind, so Margot suggests Chuck Parson. Chuck Parson is a friend of Jace Worthington, and he is also a bully. Over the years, he has bullied Q in his, and his friends a lot. When they were in sixth grade, Q, Margot, and Chuck were all students in Crown School of Dance, which was a school that ballroom dancing, so the boys would be on one side and the girls would be on the other. And how it would work was that the boy would make his way to the girl and say, may I have this dance? And the girl had to say yes. So one time, Chuck got every girl to say no to Quentin, even Margot. And Q cried when that happened, so he was okay with Chuck Parson being the next victim. So they sneak into Chuck's house and Chuck is a heavy sleeper. Margot carefully adds the wheat shaving cream on his one eyebrow. It's the type of shaving cream that doesn't require a razor. Then they put Vaseline in the doorknobs and windows, which would buy them some extra time if someone decided to run after them. Then carefully again, Q wipes the shaving cream away. and when it, And with it comes Chuck Parsons eyebrow. Just one. Exactly then... Chuck's eyes open and Margot throws his comforter over his face and jumps out of the window. Chuck yells out, Mama! Dad! Robbery! Robbery! And that's when Q jumps out too. He almost falls at Margot who was putting an M in the wall. Falls at, falls on Margot who was putting an M in the wall. They drive away as one of Chuck's parents finally make their way outside. For part 11, Margot tells him that they are going to SeaWorld which, if you don't know, is a theme park. Margot tells him that they are going to Seaworld because it is the only theme park she hasn't broken into yet. To this, Quentin says that they can't break into Seaworld. They would be caught and they would go to jail. And he couldn't afford to go to jail because he was going to Duke University and they won't accept him if he has a felony charge. I think it would would be better if I read this next conversation between Q and Margot. Q, in the scheme of things, what kind of trouble can Seaworld get you into? I mean, Jesus, after everything I've done for you tonight, you can't do one thing for me? You can't just shut up and calm down and stop being so goddamn terrified of every little adventure? And then under her breath, she said, I mean, God, grow some nuts. And now I was mad. I ducked underneath my shoulder belt so I could lean across the console toward her. After everything you did for me, I almost shouted. She wanted confidence. I was getting confident. Did you call my friend's father who was screwing my boyfriend so no one would know that I was calling? Did you shop for my ass all around the world, not because you are oh so important to me, but because I needed a ride and you were close by? Is that the kind of shit you've done for me tonight? She wouldn't look at me. She just stared straight ahead at the vinyl siding of the furniture store. Do you think I needed you? You don't think I could have given Mina Mount Weasel a Benadryl? so she'd sleep through my stealing the safe from under my parents' bed or snuck into your bedroom while you were sleeping and taking your car keys I didn't need you, you idiot I picked you and then you picked me back now she looked at me and that's like a promise at least for tonight in sickness and in health in good times and in bad for richer, for poorer till dawn do us part and then Q drives to Seaworld. At Seaworld, they plan on how to sneak inside. They're going to have to go through this moat, this drainage ditch which could have been infested by alligators, but thankfully wasn't. Or at least, if it was, they didn't encounter any. When they almost cleared out the moat, a snake bites Margot in her ankle, and Quentin takes the snake and pulls its creep out of Margot's leg and throws it aside. Then he gets down and starts sucking the venom out of her ankle. Margot... Sees the snake and realizes it's a non venomous one. And they joke about it after it happens, but that was the most heroic thing that Quintin has done in the entire book. And I thought they would mention it again, but they don't. Anyway, they get inside Seawall and immediately a guard shows up. A very pervy and corrupt guard. Margot pays him $100 for not turning them in. The guard leaves them alone for a few minutes and Quintin and Margot start talking. Margot reveals to him that doing things don't usually give her pleasure. It's the planning that does. Then they sit down and take everything in. There was music playing and Margot calls Q's name. They both get up. He goes over to her and says, May I have this dance? She says yes and they dance for a while. Their adventure ends there. It was the best night of Q's life. Outside their houses they hug and Margot says, I will miss hanging out with you. To this, Q replies, you don't have to. If you don't like them anymore, you just hang out with me. My friends are actually, like, nice. She whispers, I'm afraid that's not possible. And then she gets back on her house and and he gets back on his. This was the end of part one. We're going to take a little break and we will be right back. The next day at school, Margot doesn't show up. Q tells his friends all about his epic adventure with Margot. Margot doesn't show up the next few days either. He looks out of his window every day to check if she's in her room or if she came back from wherever she was. Her shade was always open, but she was nowhere to be seen. He thought she went away for another adventure, and he was a little sad that she didn't invite him on this one. Then one day, Q walks downstairs and sees that Margot's parents were there. And with them, there was an African-American man with oversized glasses, and he was wearing a gray suit. He was a detective. His name was Detective Warren. They tell him that Margot has run away again, and they wanted to know if he saw her, and he said that he did. She came to his window, they talked for a little bit, and then Mr. Spiegelman called her, and that was it. He doesn't mention everything that happened after. Margot's parents are not great. Here's what they had to say about her running away again. We've got a lag, we've got a locksmith coming this afternoon. We're changing the locks. She's eighteen. And then we're happy to pay for her to go to college, but we can't support this. This silliness. Connie, she's eighteen and still so self centered. She needs to see some consequences. This was the fifth time that Margot ran away, so I can understand their frustration, but still, that was a bit harsh. Last night, when she was called by her father, they told her that they don't care about what she's going to do, but they asked her not to embarrass them in front of the Jacobsons because they are their friends. Anyway, they mentioned that every time she leaves, she leaves these little clues indicating where she's going, but they never lead up to anything. The detective wants to speak to Quentin alone, he knows that Quintin knows something, so he asks Q to tell him, and that he won't share that information with Margot's parents. Q trusts him and tells him everything. The detective tells Q not to get his hopes up, that maybe she will never return. Knowing that she's missing brings in Q a worry that he wasn't feeling before. So he goes to his bedroom and plays video games with his friends. Yup. But I mean, when I was a teenager, I did something similar too. Whenever there was something that was worrying me, I would go and watch TV. Q brings his friends up to date and they are all in his bedroom now. After leaving Q's house, the detective went to Margo's room. He has handled all of Margo's running away cases. Anyway, it might have been the detective who lowered Margo's shade. There was something that was taped there now and the boys saw it. It was a black and white poster of a man staring ahead. A cigarette dangles out of his mouth. A guitar is slung over the shoulder, over his shoulder, and the guitar is painted with the words, This machine kills fascists. Radar finds out that the picture is of Woody Guthrie. He was a folk singer from 1912 to 1967. He was a bit of a communist who sang about the working class. I listened to the song that the picture was from. It's a song called Tear the Fascist Down. Ben didn't seem to like it very much. He described his voice as The guy sounds like an alcoholic Kermit the Frog with throat cancer. I mean, I can see from where he was coming from, but I actually liked the song. And his most popular one too. This land is your land. I'm not a communist, but (laughs) I do like this comrades song very much. The picture of Woody Guthrie was taped such a way that his eyes were looking straight at Q's window. They seem to think that this was maybe a clue that Margot left for him to find, out, to find her. They wait till Margot's parents leave the house. Then they make their way down and knock on the door and a little girl opens it. Her name is Ruthie and she is Margot's little sister. They tell her that they need to go into Margot's room and that they can't tell her mom and dad. That she can't tell her mom and dad. Uh, she says that Margot doesn't like when people are in her room, even her friends. But Q asks her again, and she says, $5. (laughs) I love this kid. They go up to her room. Radar checks her computer, her books, her things are all where they should be. Should be. Sorry, I lost my voice there for a second. The most surprising thing about her room was that she had a big bookcase that was full with vinyl records. Q was surprised at this. He never knew that Margot loved music so much. They started going through her records, hoping to find Woody Guthrie. It took him some time to find it. Her collection was enormous. Uh, they started playing the record on Margot's record player. It was a cover of Woody Guthrie's song. On the album cover, Ben sees a song called Walt Whitman Knees, and it was circled. Walt Whitman was a poet from the 19th century. They started looking in her shelves for his book. It was Ben who found it. Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. They went back to Q's house and he looked through the book. There were several highlighted lines, but they were two in different colors. They read, unscrew the locks from the doors, unscrew the doors themselves from their jams. Radar and Q tries to decipher these two lines, but they are having trouble. When I read it, it was clear to me what it meant, but poetry is a bitch and two simple lines of a poem may not mean what you think it does the first time you read it. As this was happening, there was mayhem in school for everyone who stood in the way of Jace Worthington and the rest of the jocks. Every time Margot went off in her adventure, these things always happened because there was no one to keep her friends in line. Jace, Chuck, Becca, and Lacey, they all knew that Quentin was with Margot that night. Jace saw them, so Jace and his friends were trying to get back on him by also tormenting his friends. So that day, after he got back from school, He created an anonymous email account, sent Jess the picture he took of him that night and told him to stop the torment on everyone at school. It was met with some resistance first, but what choice did Jace have? So they stopped bullying and paid for the damage they did. Lacey Pemberton, Margot's best friend, other best friend, the one who didn't cheat on on her, not on her, the one whose boyfriend didn't cheat her with... I don't know how to say the sentence. I am fucked up. It's 1.15 in the morning, but we have to go on. Lizzie Pemberton, uh, Margot's best friend, um, she said that she knew Quentin was with her. She wanted to know why she was with Margot or she, why she was on Margot's list that night. He told her because you knew about Becca and Jay's, and you didn't tell her. She said that she didn't know. She had a huge fight with Becca about it when she found out and she broke up with her boyfriend who also knew So now, she was out of a prom date. Hearing that, Ben's eyes lit up. This motherfucker. She thought that she would be back by now. It has been four days. Her locker was neat like she used to keep it. All the pictures were up and her books were as they should be. She was sad that she couldn't tell Margot that she played no role in it. But now that she was in New York and she can't find her, at this, both boys looked at each other. He asked her, Quinton asked her, how she, de- how she knew that Margot was in New York. She said that a few days ago she left, a few days before she left, she mentioned to Jace that New York was the only place in America where a person could actually live a halfway livable life. You know, I don't know about that, but I love me some New York City. I grew up watching Hollywood movies, and my favorite genre was romantic comedies. And almost every other romantic comedy is set in New York City. But not just that, some of my favorite sitcoms were set in New York too. Like Friends, How I Met Your Mother, New Girl, all New York. I think I fell in love with NYC because of Hollywood, but I also love the architecture. I love the tiny apartments. I love the iconic Strand bookstore, are Magic, literally, yes, but also the bookstore by the same name. These are some places in New York that I would really want to go to. So I understand Margot uh, when she says that New York City is the only place in America where a person could actually live a halfway livable life. I thought I didn't but I do. Because if I were to live in America, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else but in New York City. Anyway, Quentin leaves Ben alone with Lacey. He knows what Ben is going to do and so he gives him some privacy. Ben asked Lacey Pemberton to prom, and she said yes. Maybe because she felt guilty about the bloody Ben story that Beck Irrington started, or something, I don't know, but she said yes. Q was still reading the poem Song of Myself from Walt Whitman's *Leaves of Grass. There were other highlighted parts, and Q started viewing them as clues too that might lead him to Marco wherever she was, whether in New York or someplace else. Walt Whitman was also from New York, and Woody Guthrie lived there for some time too. Ben and Radar and Q sat down in Ben's car, which was called Rapao, and they started talking about the poem again, especially the highlighted part with the different color. As Radar and Q went back and forth about what it could mean, Ben simply said, You guys are looking at it wrong. It's not poetry. It's not metaphor. It's instructions. We're supposed to go to Margo's room, unscrew the lock from the door, and unscrew the door itself from its jams, jam, jams, jam, Jam. jams, <laughs> it's one in the fucking morning, so shut up. They all looked at him with expression of amazement. So they go back to Margo's room, and Ruthie brings them the toolbox, and they manage to get the door, door of its jam. But There was nothing, so they returned empty-handed. New York was their best guess, but even if they go to New York, how would he find her in a city so big, with so many different people? Q knew there was something else to discover, something more that Margot had left for him. He also started worrying that Margot might be dead. He He remembered the time that night when she mentioned the strings. She assured him she wouldn't kill herself to be found by little kids. But that doesn't mean that she wouldn't kill herself. Maybe she did. And maybe now she was leaving all these clues for Q to find her. So, find her where she was at. Maybe because she knew that he would be okay because he went through this once when they were kids. He started thinking about the poem again. Unscrew the lock from the doors. Unscrew the doors themselves from their jams. So far, all the clues were directed at him. Maybe it was his door he was supposed to unscrew. So he did. And sure enough, there was a little torn piece of newspaper. It was from the day she left. And on it, there was an address. 8328, Partlesville Avenue. He calls Ben and tells him about it. He mentions that he's going to go there tonight. It was dark. Ben manages to convince him to stay. They plan on going tomorrow morning with radar. It was seven days after Margot disappeared. Radar and Ben and Q make their way to the address. They drive to the place and it's an abandoned mini-mall. I think it's better if I read this. this read the description of this place. Ben pushed the power button on the stereo and we all got very quiet as Ben pulled into a parking lot long since reclaimed by the gray sandy dirt. There had once been a sign for these four storefronts, whereas that poles stood about eight feet high by the side of the road. But the sign was long gone snapped off by a hurricane or an accumulation of decay. The stores themselves had fared little better. It was a single-story building with a flat roof, and bare cinder block was visible in places. Strips of cracked paint wrinkled away from the walls, like insects clinging to a nest. Watered stains formed brown abstract paintings between the store windows. The windows were boarded up with warp sheets of particle board. I was struck by an awful thought. The kind that cannot be taken back once it escapes into the open air of consciousness. It seemed to me that this was not a place you go to live. It was a place you go to die. As soon as the car stopped, my nose and mouth were flooded with the rancid smell of death. I had to swallow back a rush of puke that rose up into the raw soreness in the back of my throat. Now only now, after all this lost time, did I realize how terribly I had misunderstood both her game and the prize for winning it. Now they yell for her, but there is no answer. They go inside the mini-mall, but it's very dark. Radar, thankfully, has a little flashlight attached to his kitchen. And using that, they go exploring inside, hoping to find her alive. A part of the wall in the mini-mall was painted with primer. Q walks over to the wall and sees red graffiti beneath it. The white paint was painted over it. I'm sorry, there is a rooster that is roosting or whatever it is called, and it's one twenty. but this rooster, it's crazy, I don't know. I don't know what happens to it. Every night it does this. I'm sorry if you're able to hear it, but yeah. There it goes again. (laughs) He couldn't make out uh, what it read, the red graffiti under the primer, but then there was a creek somewhere above them and radar drops the flashlight. The trick of the indirect light made the red graffiti come up through the coat of primer. The red graffiti read, You will go to the paper towns, and you will never come back. As scared as they can be, they get out of the mini-mall. Quentin calls the detective, tells him about what they found out and about his fear of her killing killing herself. The detective tells him that he understands his theory, but he tells him not to worry about it, because if he worries about Margot a lot, Maybe he will do something similar like her. And I have to say, when Q is looking for Margot, he does kind of become like Margot. He keeps thinking about the other highlighted parts of the poem. He tries to find something there. Not a clue, but he tries to find how Margot was like. Because now he was seeing a part of her she never showed. He goes on to Omnictionary, the reference site that Radar edits a lot in. He tries to find it. Paper Town has another meaning he doesn't know about. He learns there... And he learns that pseudo visions are also called paper towns. He presents his theory of Margot being dead in a pseudo vision, a.k.a. paper town, to Radar. Radar tells him to calm down; it may not be anything like that. Q then calls Ben, who is super excited to go to prom with Lacey. When Q presents his theory to Ben, he seems a little bit mad about, a little bit mad at Margot for hijacking their last few weeks in high school, all because she wanted some attention which pisses Q off, and they get into a little argument about it. After they hung up, Q started making a list of all the pseudovisions visions within three hours of Jefferson Park. There were five. Since Ben was going to prom, with, prom shopping with Lacey, he lent his car, Rapao, to Q. So after school ended, Q took Rapao to two of those pseudovisions to look for Margot, but she was nowhere to be found. The next day, Q asks his English teacher, Dr. Holden, about Walt Whitman and his poem, Song of Myself, hoping to get some insight. Dr. Holden suggests that he read the entire poem once, and not just the highlighted parts, to understand what it means, to understand what it meant to Margot. Now, prom is approaching. Ben is going with Lacey and Radar is going with his girlfriend, Angela. But the one girl Q wanted to take to prom may be dead, and his only priority right now is to find her and not worry about prom. But his friends don't share the same sentiment. They're happy to help him with finding Margot, but not when it involves something as big as senior prom. Q knew Radar and Ben were right to think that way, because, but he couldn't forget Margot. So he lies to his parents that he's going to prom alone with Ben and he needs his mom's car to get a tux and then go to prom and then spend um, the time with Ben, the rest of the time with Ben, spend the night at Ben's place. Now, Q's, uh, Q's parents are both therapists. They always analyze their son's behavior, their friend's behavior, but they have no clue what Q is really going through. So they allow him to take her mom's minivan. Q drives his mom's car to the third pseudo vision. With no sign of Margot, he drives to the abandoned mini mall. Inside the mini mall, he finds the first signs of Margot being alive her nail polish. The exact shade she had in his mom's car that night was inside one of the desk drawers. He decided to stay the night there. The rats did make him consider this decision, but in the end, it didn't matter. He was in a place where she was alive. She was here. There were other signs of her being there too. Reviewing all of it, he understood that Margot spent the night here. He found a blanket that she used and it still contained her smell. The thought of Margot being in a place like this, sleeping here, it seemed very unlike her. He needed to figure out that part of Margot. He needed to know what she was like when she wasn't being the Margot he knew. He called his father and told him another lie, that he was going to spend the night at Penn's house. I already told you this, didn't I? Anyway. Still very confused why Margot would spend her time at a place as boring as this, he he opened the poem, Song of Myself, and began to read, and in this place, that smell like death, where Margot was alive. He was finally able to read the poem. I'm not capable enough to decode this poem, so I'm going to let Q do it for you, and I'm just going to read the part. The thing is that the poem starts out really slowly. It's just sort of a long introduction. But around the 19th line, Whitman finally starts to tell a bit of a story, and that's where it picked up for me. So Whitman is sitting around which he calls loafing on the grass and then a child said, what is the grass fetching it to me with full hands? How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition out of hopeful green stuff woven. There was the hope Dr. Holden had talked about. Grass was a metaphor for his hope. But that's not all. He continues, Or I guess it is the handkerchief of the, Lord, of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrancer designedly dropped. Like grass is a metaphor for God's greatness or something. Or I guess the grass is it's itself a child, and then soon after that, or I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic. And it means sprouting alike in broad zones and narrow zones growing among black folks as among white. So maybe the grass is a metaphor for our equality and our essential connectedness, as Dr. Holden had said. And then finally he says of grass, and now it seems to me that beautiful uncut hair of grapes. So grass is that too. It grows, out, it grows out of our buried bodies. The grass was so many different things at once. It was bewildering. So grass is a metaphor for life and for death and for equality and for connectedness and for children and for God and for hope. I couldn't figure out which of these ideas, if any, was at the core of the poem. But thinking about the grass and all the different ways you can see it made me think about all the ways I'd seen and miss seen Margot. There was no shortage of ways to see her. <coughs> I'd been focused on what she had become, what had become of her but now, with my head trying to understand the multiplicity of grass and her smell from the blanket in my throat, I realized that the most important question was: Who was I looking for? If what is the grass has such a complicated answer, I thought, so too must who is Margot Roth Spiegelman. Like a metaphor rendered incomprehensible by its ubiquity, there was room enough in what she had left for me, left, for, left me for endless imaginings for an infinite set of margos. Q figured right after that that there was something more of her, more here, of hers, that he needed to find. So he started looking. He finds a book called Roadside America, Your Travel Guide. Someone had folded several random pages. It's a thing that uh, people do and they don't have a bookmark nearby. He started thinking that maybe she was on a journey across several different places, and she stayed here before she started. There were several other travel books as well, and he spent prom night with Marco's blanket in the complete darkness of the mini-mall, flipping through travel guide with his dad's flashlight. He dozed off for a few minutes. He was woken up by a phone call from a very drunk pen. They were all at a party at Becca's Arrington's house, and they had all been drinking. So they needed Q to be their designated driver. So he goes to pick them up at Becca's house. As he enters the house, he sees Ben upside down, still in his tuxedo, being held by Jace Worthington and other baseball players doing a keg stand. If you are as pure as me and don't know what a keg stand is, it's a drinking activity, where a person does a handstand above a keg of beers or gets held upside down like Ben and drinks. So Ben is doing a keg stand. Radar is drunk too. Angela, his girlfriend, is not. He asks why she couldn't drive them. And she says, they wanted you, thought it would get you here. Ben is ecstatic to see Q. They still have a bit of time before Ben is expected at his home, so Q makes his way into the party. He sees Jess and Becca making out, knowing full well that they are going to move forward. And this little perv stays to watch. His excuse was, people like me don't get a lot of chances to see people like Becca Arrington naked. This little shit. A few hours ago, he was pining over Margot, the girl he loves, and now he stands here at this doorway, being a pervert, looking at Margot's ex-best friend and her ex-boyfriend, making out in the hopes that he will get to see the girl naked. You guys can't see my face right now, but I'm fucking frustrated. Anyway, as it happens, he doesn't get to see Becca naked because Jace accidentally calls her Margot which puts a stop at things. Uh, Jace then spots him, but he's too busy with a very angry Becca now. And then Q makes his way to the bathroom and starts peeing. Lacey was in the bathtub. Lacey invites him to sit in the bathtub with her and tells him that Ben is sweet. She had fun at prom, but then at the party, she and Becca had a huge fight, and Becca got up on the couch and told everyone that Lacey has STD. They have a heart-to-heart moment, and this is when I think they really became friends. Lacey asks him to take her to to the prom, not prom, to the party. He says, okay, and tells her all about what he found there tonight, at the mini mall. Q carries Lacey out of the bathtub and tells her that they are going upstairs to the party, and if anyone calls her, any, calls her anything, oh, I think I messed up. Uh, shit, let's Go back a few paragraphs. They have a heart-to-heart moment, and this is when I think they really become friends. Lacey asks him to take her to the mini-mall. He says, okay, and she tells her, uh, and he says, okay, and tells her all about what he found there tonight in the mini-mall. Q carries Lacey out of the bathtub and tells her that they are going upstairs to the party, and if anyone calls her anything, he will defend her honor. This is the same little shit who was standing outside Becca Arrington's bedroom to see her naked. He is going to defend Lacey's honor. Upstairs they find Ben who is very drunk and has super glued a bunch of beer cans together to make a beer sword, which he also super glued to his hand. Drunk Ben then makes Q and Radar swear that on graduation day, which was approaching, uh, they will wear nothing under their graduation robes and they both swear it that they would be naked under their graduation ropes. Q then drops each of them off at their house. Then there was a truck passing by. The next morning, Q calls Ben and asks him to come over, for him, come over or for him to come at his house, uh, because there was a lot of Margot developments, and he wanted to tell them. A very hungover Ben now says he had to sleep and then hangs up. Q was pissed that he dropped across Central Florida in the middle of the night to go to a party for Ben, and he couldn't even come over to learn developments about the most important thing in his life right now. So he leaves a very mean voice message for Ben. He then calls Radar, who is also hungover, but comes over anyway. Q tells him what he found out. He notes down all the cities that the reader, if it was Marco, found interesting then he goes to this program where you can enter locations and it will form itineraries for you. In all of those itineraries, the trip started in Orlando and ended in Los Angeles, California. Of course, she maybe had a different direction in mind, but maybe she was making her way to LA. Radar prints up the map because Q wants to plot all the locations to see if there is any pattern or constellation, but there was nothing. With nothing more to do about it, Radar suggests that Ben. uh, Radar suggests that they call Ben to play a video game, Uh, but Q doesn't want that because, according to him, Ben's an asshole. Radar is by far the most smartest character in the entire book. He explains to Q what his problem is, expects people not to be themselves. He tells him that you should just stop expecting Ben to be you, and he needs to stop thinking that you should be him, and. You guys need to chill the fuck out. A few days later, Lacey, Ben, Radar and Q go to the mini mall. But this time they weren't alone. They met Gus, Remember him? He was a friend of Margot's. He worked as a security guard at the Sun Trust building. So he and two other guys are there. They are wearing masks. They ask Q and his friends, What are they doing there without wearing masks? The place has ton of asbestos. Hey, listen. It's twenty twenty. Wear a freaking mask, okay? They say that they are urban explorers, uh, Gus and his friends. They enter abandoned buildings, explore, take photographs, they simply observe. Gus used to let Margot tag along, but in the last couple of years she was here at the mini mall all the time. Though Margot had a great eye, she wasn't like them. She didn't want it to explore or take pictures. She just come and simply sit and write in her black notebook. Lacey knew the black notebook. She didn't know what she wrote in it, but knew that she always kept it with her. It was the only thing in her locker that wasn't there. Gus said she looked depressed whenever he saw her, and Lacey got mad at why he never asked her about it. One of the guys called Lacey a bitch, and Ben just jumped start, jumped, and started pounding on the guy. The urban explorers left. Q and everyone started looking for clues. Ben and Lacey found something, when Q came to the minimal alone, he found little holes on a wall. Ben and Leslie thought that they may have been mementos, postcards, uh, pictures stacked up there. They walked around for another hour. Just when Q thought it was a waste, his eyes fell on a subdivision brochure. He wrote down all the names of the subdivision that were that was advertised. He recognized one of the sub, uh, pseudo from the list. He hadn't visited it. Uh, he. Blah, blah, blah. he uh, he wrote down all the names of the subdivision that was advertised. He recognized one of the pseudo from his list he hadn't visited yet. He didn't tell the others about it because if he found it, he wanted it to be alone. So he went to the pseudo-vision. Its name was Collier Fram. He didn't find anything there. Then he started driving to Logan Pines. Ben called as he was driving, told him that Radar's parents were away and they were going to throw a party and Ben, Radar, and Q were hosting. Q was hesitant, but Ben told him that they were graduating in a week and Mark is the most important thing for him, but they just want their best friend to be with him on the party. Q said he was going to check out Logan Pines, and then he was coming over. Logan Pines was the last Eurovision in Florida that Q knew about, but the search was unfruitful, and he started making his way back. At the party, Q, Radar, Ben, Lacey, and Angela talk about graduation. The boys talk about being naked under their robes. The girls deny to do it because they have already picked out their dresses. Lacey kisses Ben. It was just a fun little time between friends. And when I read scenes like this, I wish that I could be like that with my friends. Yes, sure I hang out with my friends, but most of us are in different places now and it sucks that we can't have time, time like this when it sucks that we can't have time like this with them. I was really envious when I was reading this scene. Q is still reading Walt Whitman. He's trying to find Margot in them, and every time he reads, he thinks about it. He knows that he has to look at it differently to find her, but it's better if I read this next part. I went to bed with Whitman, flipping to the part I liked before, where he spends all the time hearing the opera and the People. After all that hearing, he writes, I am exposed, cut by bitter and poisoned hell. That was perfect, I thought. You listen to people so that you can imagine them and you hear all the terrible and wonderful things people do to themselves and to one another. But in the end, the listening exposes you even more than it exposes the people you're trying to listen to. Walking through pseudo-visions and trying to listen to her does not crack the Margot Rothspiegelman case so much as it cracks me. Pages later, hearing and exposed, Whitman starts to write about all the trouble he can do by imagining and list all the places he can visit while loafing on the grass. My palms cover continents, he writes. I, keep, I kept thinking about maps, just like the way sometimes when I was a kid, I would look at atla- atlases, and just the looking was kind of like being somewhere else. This is what I had to do. I had to hear and imagine my way into her map. But hadn't I been trying to do that? I looked up at the maps above my, above my computer. I had tried to plot her possible travels, but just as the grass stood for too much, so Margot stood for too much. It seemed impossible to pin her down with maps. She was too small and the space covered by the maps too big. They were more than a waste of time. They were the physical representation of the total fruitlessness of all of it. My absolute inability to develop the kinds of palm that cover conti- continents. To have the kind of mind that correctly imagines it. I got up and walked over to the maps and tore them off the wall, the pins and tags flying out with the paper and falling to the ground. I balled up the maps and threw them in the garbage can. On my way back to bed, I stepped on a tag like an idiot, and even though I was annoyed and exhausted and out of visions and ideas, I had to pick up all the thumbtacks scattered around the carpet so I didn't step on them later. I just wanted to punch the wall, but I had to pick up those stupid goddamn thumbtacks. When I finished, I got back into bed and soaked my pillow, my teeth clenched. I started trying to read the Whitman again, but between it and thinking of Margot, I felt exposed. Enough for this night. So finally I put the book down. I couldn't be bothered to get up and turn off the light. I just stared at the wall, my blinks growing longer. And every time I opened my eyes, I saw where each map had been the four holes marking the rectangle and the pinholes seemingly randomly distributed inside the rectangle. I'd seen a similar pattern before in the empty room above the rolled up carpet, a map with plotted points. So uh, the holes that Q found in the mini mall which Ben and Lacey thought had held mementos and pictures that she took with her, uh, they were actually tags that pinned location on a map, Margot's location. So Q went online and I am Radar and told him about his theory. The next day, Radar and Q went to the mini mall again. Ben was sleeping. They found a map with pinholes that was used by Margo, but it was torn and Q realizes it was not intended as a clue, but Margot was, because Margo was too precise to use the map in such a bad condition as a clue. Together, they managed to narrow down some of the location, but they couldn't be sure of it because some of the pinholes were too big uh, to be considered just one location. L.A., Chicago, New York City, New York State, Poughkeepsie, Woodstock, Catskill Park, uh, Washington D.C., Annapolis, or Chesapeake Bay. These were just some of the locations they could find, but they couldn't be sure of exactly. Q dropped radar off at his house. The finals were approaching, and Q couldn't ignore them, so he studies for the next few days. But an idea pops into his head, and he needs to needs to talk. About talk to it to talk to Lola that he needs to talk to Lacy about it. He IMs her. IM'd her. He and Lacy talked about how much planning it must have needed, everything she did, and they figured it was the black notebook where she did that. Soon Radar and Ben came online and they created a group where they talked about Margot and their theories. Q was trying to map her route. They had the finals and Radar made a program the night before his exam. The program allows you to enter a category in Omniscient, and you can read the first sentences of up to 100 articles on that category. Now, for the finals and Q feels now the finals happen, and Q feels sad about leaving high school. He thinks he feels what Marco must have felt before she left. It's graduation day now, and Q's parents give him a minivan as a present. He appreciates the car. Doesn't appreciate that it's a minivan, but he accepts it. He doesn't deny it. It's a car. I mean. He informs Ben and Radar about the car. Radar asks if he could bring the cooler full of two hundred and twelve beers that no one drank in the party and store it at, at uh, Q's new car. Q says yes. As Q showers, he thinks he understands Margot. He thinks she had, I felt sure, left for a place, a place where she could stay long enough for it to matter, long enough for the next leaving to feel as good as the last one. She, last one, had. He used radar's program to find something, something that would take him to her. He searches for different places that could have been pinned on that map and that's when he learns about Aglo in New York State. Aglo is a fictitious place created by the ESO company. So he clicked on it and finds out that Aglo is a paper town that was created by a cartographer as a copyright trap. But someone actually built an Aglo general store so Aglo started appearing in other maps. The population of Aglo is zero. Now, here was something that caught Q's eye. In, this, in the discussion page, an anonymous user wrote FYI, whoever edits this, the population of Aglo will actually be 1 until May 29th at noon. This is it. He found her. She was in Aglo, New York, a paper town. He calls Radar, who was with him, uh, who was with Ben, and tells them what he found out. He starts planning for the trip he was going. He was going to meet her, and he was going to take his car. He was going to miss graduation, uh, but they asked him to come and bring the beer and tell his parents. He goes, he explains to his parents what's happening, and they're stunned. Um, as he enters the car, he sees Ben, Lizzie, and Radar sitting inside. They decides to. They decided to come accompany him so they can drive when he needs to sleep because it's a 21-hour journey. It's Take a quick break. It's one i I'm tired as heck and I will be right back. So, on their graduation day, Q, Radar, Ben and Lacey starts driving to a place that only exists in MAP to find Margot Roth Spiegelman. Radar creates the plan on how the journey should go, where they should stop, how much speed they should go in. Uh, And the journey is the most fun Q had since the night with Margo. Ben talks about peeing all the time, and when he can't control it anymore, he takes one of the beers from the back, back, empties it, and then pees in it. They stop at a gas station, rush everything, buy supplies, uh, fills the gas tank, and leaves without wasting any time. They forget to buy fruits for Lissy, so she has to eat food with a lot of sugar and calories. Uh, they buy a t-shirt for Ben and Radar that turns out to be t-shirts t- with confederate flags. They almost die because Q whilst driving almost hits a big-ass cow. Why does it feel like it's happening in India? Anyway, uh, Ben saves them by grabbing the steering wheel and dodging the cow. They make it to Aglo and if you stayed this long, you guys deserve to know exactly what happens. So I'm going to read the Aglo chapter for you. I am not going to read the entire chapter of course, but I'm just, I will just um, mention real quick what happens. They make it to Aglo and they, let's see, notice as Margo's car and they make it to the only uh, building in the entire town of Aglo which is the general aglo general store, and they go inside, and this is what happens. Uh, ben sees Margot, and here's uh, the chapter. Margot Roth Spiegelman sits in a black leather office chair, hunched over a school desk, writing. Her hair is much shorter. She has choppy bangs above her eyebrows, and everything is mussed up as if to emphasize the asymmetry but it is her she is alive she has relocated her office from an abandoned mini mall in florida to an abandoned barn in new york and i have found her we walk her we walk toward margot all four of us but she doesn't seem to see us she just keeps writing finally someone radar maybe says margot margot she stands up on her tiptoes her hands resting atop the makeshift cubicle's wall. If she's surprised to see us, her eyes do not give it away. Here is Margot Roth Spiegelman, five feet away from me, her lips clapped to cracking, makeup less, dirt in her fingernails, her eyes silent. I've never seen her dead like that. But then again, maybe I've never seen her eyes before. She stares at me. I feel certain she is staring at me and not at Lacey or Ben or Radar. I haven't felt so stared at since Robert Jonas' dead eyes watched me in Jefferson Park. She stands there in silence for a long time, and I am too scared of her eyes to keep walking her forward. I and this mystery, here we stand, Whitman wrote. Finally, she says, give me like five minutes, and then sits back down and resumes her writing. I watch her write. Except for being a little grimy, she looks like she has always looked. I don't know why but I always thought she would look different, older, that I would barely recognize her when I finally saw her again but there she is and I'm, I'm watching her through the plastic glass and she looks like Margot Roth Spiegelman, this girl I've known since I was two, this girl who was an idea that I loved. And it is only now when she closes her notebook and places it inside a backpack next to her and then stands up and walks toward us that I realize that the idea is not only wrong, but dangerous. What a treacherous thing it is to believe that a person is more than a person. Hey, she says to Lacey, smiling. She hugs Lazy first, then shakes Ben's hand, then radars. She raises her eyebrows and says, hi Q, and then hugs me, quickly and not hard. I want to hold on. I want an event, I want to feel her heaving sobs against my chest, tears running down her dusty cheeks onto my shirt, but she just hugs me quickly and sits down on the floor. I sit down across from her, with Ben and Radar and Lacey following in a line, so that we are all facing Margot. It's good to see you, I say after a while, feeling like I'm breaking a silent prayer. She pushes her bangs to the side. She seems to be deciding exactly what to say before she says it. I, uh, uh, I'm rarely at a loss for words, huh? Not much talking to people lately. Um, I guess maybe we should start with what the hell are you doing here? Margot, Lacey says, Christ, we were so worried. No need to worry, Margot answers cheerfully. I'm good. She gives us two thumbs ups. I'm A-OK. You could have called us and let us know that, Ben says. His voice tinged with frustration. Saved us a hell of a drive. In my experience, bloody Ben, when you, play, when you leave a place, it's best to leave. Why are you wearing a dress, by the way? Ben blushes. Don't call him that, Lacey snaps. Margot cuts a look at Lacey. Oh. My. God. Are you hooking up with him? Lacey says nothing. You're not actually hooking up with him, Margot says. Actually, yes, Lacey says. And actually, he's great. And actually, you're a bitch. And actually, I'm leaving. It's nice to see you again, Margot. Thanks for terrifying me and making me feel like shit for the entire last month of my senior year. And then being a bitch when we track you down to make sure you're okay. It's been a real pleasure knowing you. You too. I mean, without you, how would I have ever known how fat I was?" Lacy gets up and stomps off her footfalls vibrating through the crumbling floor. Ben follows. I look over and Radar has stood up too. I never knew you until I got to know you through your clues, he says. I like clues. I like your clues more than I like you. What the hell is he talking about? Margo asks me. Radar doesn't answer. He just leaves. I should too, of course. They're my friends, more than Margot certainly, but I have questions. As Margot stands and starts to walk back towards her cubicle, I start with the obvious one: Why are you acting like a Why are you acting like such a brat? She spins around and grabs a fistful of my shirt and shouts into my face: Where do you get off showing up here without any kind of warning? How could I have warned you when you were, when you completely dropped off the face of the planet? I see a long blink and know she has no response for this. So I keep going. I'm so pissed at her for, for, I don't know, not being the Margot I had expected her to be, not being the Margot I thought I had finally imagined correctly. I thought for sure there was a good reason why you ne- never got in touch with anyone after that night. And this is your good reason? So you can live like a bum? She lets go of my shirt and pushes away from me. Now who's being a brat? I left the only way you can leave. You pull your life off all at once, like a band-aid. And then you get, out, get to be you. And let's gets to be Liz. And everybody gets to be everybody. And I get to be me. Except I didn't get to be me, Margot. Because I thought you were dead for the longest time. So I had to do all kinds of crap that I would never do. She screams at me now, pulling herself up by my shirt. So she can get in my face. Oh bullshit. You didn't come here to make sure I was okay. You came here because you wanted to save poor little Margot from her troubled little self. So that I would be oh so thankful to my knight in shining armor. That I would strip my clothes off and beg you to ravage my body. Bullshit. I shout. Which it mostly is. You were just playing with us weren't you? You just wanted to make sure that even after you left to go have your fun. You were still the axis we spun around. She's screaming back. Louder than I thought possible. You're not even pissed at me, Q. You're pissed at this idea of me you keep inside your brain from when we were little. She tries to run away, turn away from me now. But I grab her shoulders and hold her in front of me and say, Did you ever think about what your leaving meant? About Ruthie? About me or Lacey or any of the other people who cared about you? No. Of course you didn't. Because if it doesn't happen to you, it doesn't happen at all. Isn't that it, Margot? Isn't it? She doesn't fight me now. She just slumps her shoulder, turns, and walks back to her office. She kicks down both of the plexiglass walls and they clamor against the desk and chair before sliding onto the ground. Shut up, shut up, shut up, you asshole. Okay, I say. Something about Margot being com- Margot completely losing her temper allows me to regain mine. I try to talk like my mom. I'll shut up. We're both upset. Lots of uh, unresolved issues on my side. She sits down in the desk chair, her feet on what had been the wall of her office. She's looking into a corner of the barn, at least ten feet behind, between us. How the hell did you even find me? I thought you wanted us to, I answer. My voice is so small, I'm surprised she even hears me. But she spins the chair to glare at me. I sure as she did not. Sock on myself, I say. Guthrie took me to Whitman, Whitman took me to the door, the door took me to the mini-mall. We figured out how to read the painted over graffiti. I didn't understand paper towns." it can also mean subdivisions that never got built. And so I thought you had gone to one and were never coming back. I thought you were dead in one of these places, that you had killed yourself and wanted me to find you for whatever reason. So I went to a bunch of them, looking for you. But then I matched the map in the skip shop to the thumbtack halls. I started reading the poem more closely. Figured out you weren't running away, running probably, just hold up, planning, writing in that notebook. I found Aglo from the map, So your comment on the talk page of Omnishno, skip skipped graduation and drove here. She brushes her hair down, but it isn't long enough to fall over her face anymore. I hate this haircut, she says. I want it to look different, but it looks ridiculous. I like it, I say. It frames your face nicely. I'm sorry I was being so bitchy, she says. You just have to understand, I mean, you guys walk in here out of nowhere and you scared the shit out of me. You could have just said, guys, you're scaring the shit out of me. I said, she scoffs. Yeah, right. Because that's the Margot Roth Spiegelman everybody knows and loves. Margot is quiet for a moment and then says, I knew I shouldn't have said that on Omnitionary. I just thought it would be funny for them to find it later. I thought the cops might trace it somehow, but not soon enough. There's like a billion pages on Omnictionary or whatever. I never thought what. I thought about you a lot to answer your question. And Ruthie. And my parents. Of course, okay. Maybe I am the most horribly self-centered person in the world. In the history of the world. But God. Do you think I would have done it if I didn't need to? She shakes her head. Now finally she leans towards me. Elbows on knees. And we are talking. At a distance, but still, I couldn't figure out any other way that I could leave without getting dragged back. I'm happy you're not dead," I say to her. "Yeah, me too," she says. She smirks, and it's the first time I've seen that smile I've spent so much time missing. That's what I had to leave. That's why I had to leave. As much as life can suck, it always it always beats the alternative. My phone rings. It's Ben. I answer it. Lacey wants to talk to Marco. He tells me. I walk over to Marco, answer the phone, and linger there as she sits with her shoulder hunched, listening. I can hear the noises coming through the phone and then I hear Marco cut her off and say, Listen, I'm really sorry. I was just so scared. And then silence. Lacey starts talking again finally and Marco laughs and says something. I feel like they should have some privacy so I do some exploring. Um... Now, they again, um, I don't know, I feel like this reunion scene between this uh, in the book is extremely well written. Uh, In the movie, it was like terrible. It was very terrible. And I don't think like the actors had the acting capabilities to pull it off. But in this uh, book, it's amazing. Lizzie tells Margot that they are staying in a motel in the park, and if um, Quintin doesn't come in a, come by before the morning, they are going to leave without him. And then Quintin and Margot just starts talking about like everything, about why she left and uh, what happened, why she chose him to be in the plan. And she said that when they were little, when they were 10 years old, she started writing this book uh, in this little black notebook and was the story of them, Margot and uh, Quentin, investigating the murder of Robert Joyner. Only they were like they were different. Like her parents were actually nice and both them bought her whatever she wanted to. And he was all brave and heroic who would jump out, uh, jump in front of her if someone shot her and when like before she the original plan was different before she knew about jace and becca cheating the original plan was different she thought she was going to break into seawall and she was started writing that plan in the black notebook and maybe it was because she was reading the old story as she went along that she decided to add uh, him quentin from the beginning and then she found out about jace and becca and then she adapted the plan to them but she also liked the idea of doing it all with him and um and so he did and so she did and she thought that it would liberate him like it would uh make him a little bit adventurous and it does it does just that um and then like she know like like for all these years quentin was a paper boy for him two dimension but then that night, he became real. And then when she went back to her bedroom, she just started missing him. She wanted to come and talk and just be with him, like chat with him. But she knew that she had to leave because everything, her strings broke. Her strings are, in this in this particular case, are things that are keeping her to this place, to this uh, Jefferson, to Florida with her parents. But then... All of them broke, and last lame string was her friends, and even that broke. So she left. She had to leave because leaving is difficult if unless you do it until you do it. Once you leave, it becomes easy. And so she couldn't come back and couldn't uh, like couldn't stay. But uh, before she leave, she just like every time she leaves, she leaves clues, and this time she wanted to leave something for him, and she does. She leaves the Woody Guthrie painting and she, th- she thinks that she stays in the mini mall, which she calls Osprey, um, for two days. Hoping that maybe he will find her sooner and maybe she will stay. But it takes him ten days to get to the mini mall and by then she's long gone. And that's why um, she had Quentin in her original plan. And then in in this paper town in Aglo, uh, she, like, had everything she wanted. There was an outhouse. She would go there to, like, for bathroom. And the woman's bathroom was always clean because uh, there were no female truckers. And she would get internet and everything. And, yeah. So, the, so they kiss. They kiss. I don't, like, I am very... Sleepy. I'm very tired. so I'm just rushing through the ending here. They kiss and They bury the diary and they bury their old selves as well the people they were the idea that they had of each other and Margot doesn't want him to leave she asks him to stay and but he does. He can't say he has an entire life of, like, that he has to live, and he's not like Margot. He is different. We all know this, but still, Margot asks him to leave. and when he tries to explain, it, she knows, and she kisses him, and that's where the book ends. It's. Uh, yeah. I like the ending, and I like the part with Margot and. Quintin. Whenever Margo and Quintin were together, uh, I liked the book. I loved it, but when they were apart, which is most of the book, I was not a big fan, and that's why I rated it 3.5 stars. Thank you for listening. This episode, um, it was difficult to make. I'm not going to lie. It took me some really long time to write the script and then when I started recording it it started getting late and I started getting tired and I was messing up a lot so for that I want to apologize and if you listen to all of it and if you're listening to this right now I just want to say thank you you're the most patient human person in the entire world Um, make sure you follow this podcast and share it with your friends it helps a lot I'm sorry this was a long episode I will try my best to like keep the episode at a certain like i'll try and contain them in a time frame not a time frame in mean a time limit um so that you guys don't have to listen to my weird voice for this long join us next week uh, where i talk about Carl Sagan's book cosmos and then thank you also for giving me so much love to the uh, for the Joanne friends go back to Hogwarts series. Um, I love to make them and it feels nice to know that you guys appreciate it. Next Tuesday, I sit with a friend to talk about Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So make sure you listen that as well. Thank you so much again for staying, for listening. I appreciate it a lot. And good night or good evening or good morning or whatever it is. Bye-bye.